But Kathy and I have been thinking recently about um, using different metaphors, right? Not this idea of transfer where um, like in a bank transfer, you take something out of your bank account and you put it into another one, right? And, and then it's, it's not there for you anymore, but more like our devices now, right? That everything syncs, right? So what I put on my, my iPad, I can access on my phone, right? And it's always there for me. And so how do we think about everything we teach kids in one language is still accessible to them in the other? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast from Elevation Education that explores how we can make an impact on our nation's highest growing student demographic, multilingual learners. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Once again, before we introduce this episode's guests, I want to take a moment to remind you that the interview you're about to hear is just one part of our exploration of this topic. You'll find multimedia resources, including a transcript of this episode, accompanying blog posts, videos, collaboration opportunities, and more on our learning community. If it sounds like I repeat this all the time, that is because it is worth checking it out. Visit bit.ly slash getmlresources for more information, and that is all lowercase. Our community resources are always free, they will always be free, and they'll always be available when you need them. You can use the search bar or the filters to find resources that you are looking for. Now to this week's episode, some of the questions we'll be exploring are, what is the relationship between decoding and comprehension when reading? And why is it important for educators to prioritize both? Why are key literacy resources like school librarians or educational media specialists, as they're called now, and even classroom libraries growing scarce? And what are the consequences? How can listeners begin to take steps on a micro and a macro level to improve flawed education policies that are impacting multilingual learners? We discuss these questions and much more with Dr. Kathy Escamilla and Dr. Sue Hopewell. Dr. Kathy Escamilla is a professor emerita of education in the Division of Equity, Bilingualism, and Biliteracy at the University of Colorado Boulder. She held the Bob and Judy Charles Endowed Chair in this division. Her research focuses on issues relating to the development of bilingualism and biliteracy for Spanish-speaking emerging bilingual children in U.S. schools. Her research has also examined assessment practices for emerging bilingual learners. She has authored three books and over 50 research articles on topics related to biliteracy for Spanish-speaking children in the U.S. Her most recent research project, titled Literacy Squared Lecto Escritora al Cuadrado, has been implemented in six states with over 5,000 students and 400 teachers. She served two terms as the president of the National Association for Bilingual Education and one term as the chair of the Bilingual Special Interest Group at AERA. Her best professional memories, however, are from being a bilingual teacher in Colorado and California. And as she says, the best, best, best memories are being a mother of two and an abuelita of four. Dr. Sue Hopewell is the director and co-founder of Literacy Squared and an associate professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, also in the Division of Equity, Bilingualism, and Biliteracy in the School of Education. Her research focuses on issues of language, culture, equity, and identity, especially as they impact or are affected by bilingualism in the related literacy practices at the elementary school level. She has held leadership positions in national and state-level bilingual organizations, including serving as the chair of Bilingual Education Research Special Interest Group of the American Education Research Association and the secretary-slash-program chair on the board of directors for the Colorado Association of Bilingual Education. 
Her K-12 teaching experience includes eight years as a classroom teacher in a dual language elementary school and four years as a literacy coach in a maintenance bilingual program. As always, thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. Here's our conversation with Dr. Kathy Escamilla and Dr. Sue Hopewell. Kathy Escamilla and Sue Hopewell, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. It's our pleasure to be here. So happy to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, so, I, you know, this is a, I think this is a topic that we've covered before, but I'm, I have a feeling that it's going to go in a bit of a different direction, which I'm kind of excited about um, after having spoken with you, Kathy, a few weeks ago about this topic. And, you know, you all both have spent a significant portion um, of your careers thinking about literacy, specifically in many cases for Spanish speaking kids. This experience has led you to, to come to some conclusions about the way we teach multilingual learners to read. And so I want to start like very, very general. Um, what does the research tell us uh, and how are educational policies aligned to that research right now? I think part of it is starting with educational policy generally isn't aligned, right? So Research is very clear that the most efficacious path for teaching kids to read is by literacy, right? And having bilingual programs. And we have been fighting against a tide of anti-bilingual education for, for quite some time. And so partly I think what we need to be thinking about is um, how do we help policymakers to understand what the research actually says? And I think as we dig into this a little bit more over the course of this conversation, what we're gonna find is that the science doesn't match what's being what's out there in the media right now. And so one of the ways we've been trying to think about this is in, in bilingual education for a long time, we've talked about um, transfer, right? That kids can take what they know in one language and they can transfer it to another. But Kathy and I have been thinking recently about um, using different metaphors, right? Not this idea of transfer where um, like in a bank transfer, you take something out of your bank account and you put it into another one, right? And, and then it's, it's not there for you anymore. Yep. But more like our devices now, right? That everything syncs, right? So what I put on my my iPad, I can access on my phone, right? And it's always there for me. And so how do we think about everything we teach kids in one language is still accessible to them in the other? And I think I think that's how we need to be thinking more in terms of literacy and what we're doing with our um, bilingual learners. I really love that way of explaining it with the devices. Of course, that's the assumption that all the devices are working properly or that the person, <laughs> in my case, that's the person true. has set it up the right way uh, to work. But that, that makes a lot of sense. That transfer piece is it's like from uh -huh. one to the other, but that's not what we're talking about. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Kathy, anything to add there in general before we kind of get a little bit more specific here? Um, no. I, well, no, I will add something anyway, but uh, no, I think Sue said it very well. Um, what the very beginning of my career when when bilingual education in this country was just beginning to to take root, um, I knew that when I got kids in my classrooms who came from other countries who could read, I knew that they took on reading faster mm -hmm. than kids who had no literacy in their first languages when they came to school. I didn't know that by research. I hadn't read any theories about that. But I knew that because I observed it in my classroom. And I think um, what Sue was saying, that's how we started to call it transfer. We said they're taking from one language to another one. And in fact, if we're doing it right, we're building those reserves. So they're going from one language to another one back to the other language. But even um, observational experience, any teacher will tell you 
that kids who can read well in one language take on second language reading easier. Thanks for saying that. I think anybody who's listened to probably even two or three of these episodes have heard me talk about the this this gap between research and practice. And that anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. is so crazy. As somebody who's a teacher myself mm-hmm. for a long time, yes, you can see that. Um, and I think a lot of this is just, as you said, kind of bringing the science in so people understand it, but probably bridging that gap as well as a part of it. Um, so, Kathy, I'm going to stick with you for a second. I know you have... Uh, how shall I say it? Strong feelings about uh, about the science of reading, um, which yeah. which which, from my perspective, seems to be largely based on the principle that everyone um, has to learn to decode in the same way in the same order. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when I zoom out and I think about all the work that we're doing with multilingual lingual learners and really all students, that doesn't seem to allow for much room, um, uh, much room for the differences between languages. Um, not to mention all of the diverse skills and assets that that students bring with them. So uh, tell me about sort of your strong feelings about the science of reading and expand on that a little bit. Sure. So I I first want to clarify that I am not against teaching foundational skills to children. And I don't think anybody um, who I'm working with is. We all acknowledge that the kids are well served when we teach them um, foundational skills, but those differ across languages. Foundational skills and the way they're taught in English is different than the way they're taught in Spanish, and we need to acknowledge that. So that's one issue, is this idea that foundational skills are English-based and English is good enough um, to to, uh, translate to all the other languages and teach Spanish foundational skills as if they're English. So that's one problem. A second problem is the limits that foundational skills place on us. So it's fine to teach foundational skills. It's not enough. Kids need a robust, robust literacy program wherein they are learning to love reading, wherein they have opportunities for comprehension. Um, again, um, any teacher that I've ever worked with will say my kids in English who are learning English as an additional or a second language can decode very well. What they can't do is understand. Mm -hmm. And so we have to teach English while we're teaching kids to read in English. We have to be sure that they can understand and interact with text. And I'm uh, worried that the foundational skills make comprehension sort of a lesser um, priority. Yeah, I I mean, I think one of the things that I assume people know this, right? But I feel like we need to keep saying like the science is broader than just decoding. We need to, to the way it's been characterized in the media has been sort of grossly inadequate. So it's science for whom, under what conditions, right? right? And the science varies by the population you're teaching, the condition, you know, it's going to differ if you're in an all English environment versus a multilingual environment. Um, what language are, gonna, are you going to use to teach those, those foundational skills and why? Um, but if you're not getting at the comprehension, what's the point, right? So it's necessary. It's just insufficient. Yeah, I appreciate you both clarifying that. Um, and I didn't mean to frame it like it was this, you know, horrible thing. So that's it's really great that you, <laughs> but you know, it's, 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 we're going to dive in. I think people will begin to understand as we move forward here or continue to understand. We're talking now kind of getting into this idea of decoding and comprehension. Um, the, and that difference is obviously really important to understand. So help us understand that the relationship between decoding and comprehension. How do they work together? Because we just mentioned those foundational skills are important, right? Um, how do they work together to help particularly multilingual students learn to read? Well, 
I mean, you can't understand words you can't read, right? So, so you do need to be able to break the code. You do need to be able to, um, to get at words, but just, I can decode words in languages I don't actually understand, right? Like I can take a German text and actually decode relatively well with the one semester of German I had. Doesn't mean I understand anything, right? So like the ultimate goal is that we get kids to comprehend what they're reading and be able to talk about it and to use it and to apply it in new contexts. And so word calling isn't enough. And any of us who have taught, you've taught for a while, Steve, I, I taught, Kathy taught, right? We had those word callers. Mm -hmm. right? We had kids who looked good on paper. They could say the words. It sounded like they understood. And at one point, we even made the assumption that if they could say them quickly, they understood them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that's just like, it's a fallacy. And so if the ultimate goal of reading is comprehension, we can't put all our eggs in that one bucket, right? Which is where the current argument seems to be that as long as we teach decoding, everything else will fall into kind place. Kind of fall into place, right. And in fact, I mean, you know, from, from being bilingual yourself, like you need to focus on language. You need to focus on vocabulary. You need to have opportunity to both develop your receptive language and your productive language. And so all of those pieces need attention in the classroom. You know what this, Kathy, I want to hear if you have any uh, um, sort of thing to add there, but I have to kind of tell this quick story because it really illustrates this from a different point of view. I was a high school Spanish teacher. So I taught the majority of my students were students who were learning Spanish for the first time in school. And I had this really interesting situation where I had them as freshmen and then I had them as sophomores and any of those kids who really wanted to take an AP course, I would have them in as juniors in AP Spanish language and then as seniors in AP Spanish literature. So I saw these kids like either progress or not progress in a variety of different ways. And the other thing that I did, which is really cool, is, is for, uh, I think we went four times, we did trips to Peru. So we take these kids to Peru, which was wonderful and amazing. And these, yeah. kids, these kids, a lot of were, they're very privileged, able to do it. They, but they worked really hard to make it happen and they loved it. And what I found, and this is also very anecdotal, there's no research on this, but the students who were kind of your, your students who on paper or with decoding, for example, didn't really perform very well. They had a hard time like conjugating verbs or whatever the case may be. And they, you know, they were kind of at times apathetic about some of the grammatical things, but you put them in a situation where now they're in a market and they want this thing that they want to buy and you observe their language. And it's like, wow, like it's unbelievable. And it really affected the way that I was, you know, that I got back and taught because it's, it's like the classic, right? If you can conjugate the verb, so yeah, it says so much like son, right? What does that really, what's that going to really do for you at the end of the day? So it's that balance, right? Anyway, that's yeah. just a, my quick take on that. Mm -hmm. Agree. And you need real authentic reasons to use language, yes. right? Yeah. And, and times to practice mm -hmm. them. And a lot of the, the decoding, kill and drill skill stuff isn't that, right? It, it's, again, it's necessary. You have to be able to, to, um, to understand that sound symbol relationship but it's not enough. And it's, it's grossly not enough. Completely agree. I would, I would add just two quick things. One, um, the science of reading people have never have, have never been able to prove a causal factor. In other words, there, it is good. It is a good correlation between being a de de good decoder and subsequent understanding of text. 
but one they haven't proven that one causes the other mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that that's that's one thing that I think that is important in thinking about the science of anything is that there are different levels of what the way thing one uh, variable impacts another one, um, and the other one is to this day. Um, I no longer decode every single word that I read. I haven't done that probably since second grade. But when I do come across a word that I don't know, I will stop and I will say, okay, don't know this. I don't know what this word means. And I will use decoding skills and Mm -hmm. try to break it apart. So it's not that it's not a useful skill. It's just not the only skill. Yeah. And it definitely has its limitations when that isn't your language. It has its limitations to comprehension because it doesn't really matter, as Sue said, if I can uh, pronounce all the words correctly and if I can read at a reasonable rate, if I don't understand what I'm reading, it's sort of a lost cause. Sure. And I think if we all had those kind of lessons, I mean, I think of myself and like going to travel to a Spanish speaking country for the first time, thinking that I was some master at Spanish because I had some vocabulary in my pocket and I could conjugate verbs. And then it's all of a sudden you're like, whoa, what I need to figure this out. Um, You know, you realize kind of what the implications are to learning in a very kind of rote way. And that kind of leads me to my next question, which is more not short term uh, implications like the ones I'm talking about, long term implications. Yeah. You know, um, if indeed the science of reading and other sort of strategies uh, or policies are perhaps creating a generation of kids who are good decoders, but not necessarily skilled at comprehension, um, what does that mean for multilingual learners and particularly subgroups who are already facing lots of challenges like long term English learners? Oh, um, oh, and a big, a big deep breath and a sigh, because um, the the history of um, success in teaching English reading to multilingual learners in the United States is a sad one. And I find it very ironic that we have written for the last 30 years about gaps in achievement, and basically are proposing to do the very same thing um, at sort of a stealth, (laughs) a, a much more limited Um, way that we've been doing for the last 30 years that has caused us to talk about a gap in achievement between multilingual learners and English speakers. So in other words, if I've been doing the same thing for 30 years and haven't figured out a cure for cancer, maybe it's time for me to do something differently instead of proposing doing, you know, three things less and, um, and uh, more intensely. Um, So we don't have the research on multilingual learners that any of this over the past 30 some years, and yet we've seen different iterations of it since the release of the the National Reading Panel report in 2000, we've seen different iterations of um, focus on foundational skills uh, in various kinds of programs. And now we're doing it with impunity. And we don't have any results that say that those those promises, those practices were promising. Yeah, I like how you said, well, I don't like it, but I appreciate that you brought up the different iterations of the same thing, because that can deceive people. Um, And and like, and zooming in a little bit here, you know, we're talking kind of on a large scale here. Uh, I I, I talk about this a lot. And as somebody, again, who is a teacher myself, like, like you all, you know, particularly when you're just starting off, um, you're very well-meaning, you know, you want the best for your students. But maybe you don't have the training or expertise necessary to leverage the assets, for example, that multilingual students bring with them. And then there's this kind of like 
sense of of this kind of pobrecito syndrome that everybody kind of that I've heard a lot is just like I got to take care of them, I got to shelter them, I got to make sure that um, that they're going to be okay. And probably now more than ever, you know, that's really important. Social making sure that people are safe, students feel safe, and that they're able to uh, to, to to do well in school. But then we don't have that kind of productive um, struggle that 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 students need. So. I guess my question is, and this is kind of a tricky one, and and I don't I don't mean to like throw any teachers under the bus because like again it's unintentional. But to what extent are are these issues that we're talking about kind of unintentionally exacerbated by well-meaning teachers? It's interesting. I very rarely go back to like no child left behind and say good things. However, <laughs> I do think that like when George W. Bush said we have to be careful about the the soft bigotry of low expectations. Like that's real, right? We need to make sure we're holding our children to high expectations because they're capable, right? They're, they're, just because they're multilingual does not mean they, they cannot or that they can't be held to grade level expectations. And so um, as you said, you never want to throw teachers under the bus. I have the utmost respect for teachers. It's mm-hmm. one of the hardest jobs on the planet, right? And then it's even that much harder when you have lots of different profiles of students in your classroom. Mm-hmm. So I want to go bigger than the teacher level, right? I Please. think that we need to be thinking about our teacher preparation programs, right? So how are we in higher education? I'm going to implicate us, right? Kathy and I work in higher ed. We work in, in teacher preparation. How are we making sure that every teacher that comes out of our programs is prepared to work with this population? It's not a small population. If you stay in teaching long enough, you're going to have bilingual learners in your classroom. So how are we making sure that we help teachers to have the skill set that they need? So that's us in higher ed. And even higher than that, I think we have an obligation through the Office for English Language Acquisition. I wish it were called OBEMLA, but it's OELA, right? Um, How are they providing the funding for us to pull teachers in and help them if they've already gone through our programs and they don't have the skill set, right? How are they helping us to provide tuition money or to, to, to bring professional development into schools and districts, right? So I think that, that we're all implicated in this, right? It's not just the teacher. It's what is the whole system doing to make sure that we're all prepared to, um, to build on kids' assets? I completely agree. I, I, and I would just add, I wouldn't want somebody to go back and judge my whole career based on the first year that I taught. Oh, boy. Uh, and so, yeah, because it would be a pretty sad story. And yeah. so I think w- we need to absolutely improve teacher preparation, but understand that this is not a finished product we're putting out there. It's a teacher who's prepared to begin her career. And then we need to provide support systems and opportunities to continue to develop and grow across the years. I, I, I always use the, the comparison to physicians. I wouldn't want to go to a physician who graduated medical school 34 years ago and hadn't read an article since then and was practicing medicine like the first day they, they walked out the door. So I think it's incumbent upon us to figure out how we are going to nurture and support uh, teachers in their initial stages, but as they're uh, as they're 
progressing in their careers and recognize that we got a lot of experts in schools who could be helping each mm-hmm. other if mm-hmm. we provided the time and space for people to collaborate with each other. I think we're not using in-school resources as well as we could. I appreciate you both bringing both of those things up, the pre-service piece, which I think is really important. And I was going to ask you if you didn't bring it up, but I don't need to because you did, is the, the professional learning that's, that's ongoing, right? I mean, there's a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of research out there on what good professional development looks like. It's got to be sustained. It's got to be flexible. It's got to uh, be job embedded. And there's a bunch mm-hmm. more. And, you know, Linda Darling Hammond and, and her group has done a lot of great work on that. And I'd recommend looking into that. But professional learning is so crucial. And, you know, the reality is that there are a lot of teachers out there who, through no fault of their own, have never had the training. All of a sudden, they're teaching math to students mm-hmm. who only speak English and demographics mm-hmm. shift. And 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 that that not only causes... I think a lack of, of um, resources and knowledge of how to do it, but it can also really bring teachers down because they want the best for their students and they feel lost, you know? Um, and I think it is a combination of a variety of different things, right? There is a lot of expertise to your point, Kathy, in schools that we could leverage. Um, but then we have to think about the time that it takes to do that. It's like what structures can be something we're thinking a lot about right now. So it's something I could, maybe that's another episode that we get into the whole professional learning piece. It's one of my favorite, but also most frustrating topics out there. Um, great. Well, I appreciate that. That's, that's, um, that's so, so crucial. Kathy, you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned when we last talked, and I was so glad you mentioned, cause I don't hear it very frequently, um, is you emphasize the importance of educational media specialists kind of formerly known as school librarians. I, and as a teacher, and even as a student thinking back, those people play such an important role if they're leveraged the right way, um, I think is, is kind of the, the, the caveat there. Um, and their numbers are decre- decreasing. I didn't know this. You told me this, this, and particularly in schools where the majority of students are, are poor or students of color in rural areas. So first of all, why is this happening? Um, and, and I just kind of outlined a little bit, but why should we be concerned about this and what can we do? Um, well, that's, there's a lot in, in all of those questions. But so first of all, yes, we do have the research that they are, the, the number of specialists, of media specialists are decreasing, uh, particularly in areas where we need them the most, in areas where children don't have access in many cases to, to books or resources outside of the school. Um, these are the places where you need a good library, where you need a librarian who um, who, who knows what she's doing. Um, we also know that with, again, with the impending science of reading, that in-class libraries are going to shrink, that um, teachers are being mandated to use certain kinds of books mm. um, and only those books. And so that in combination with lit- few opportunities in media, don't give kids white opportunities to read. And that's what you need. Um, I grew up in a little teeny town in Colorado, and I lived for something called the bookmobile. It came once a week. We could check out four or five books. They were always books that weren't in my school. I loved the smell of the library, the bookmobile. I wanted to grow up to be the person who drove the bookmobile. That was my (laughs) career goal. Um, So I, I can't emphasize enough. Um, it's, it's not just that the, the media specialists are decreasing. It's, it's another thing. It's that libraries tend to be the place where the most diverse books are. So, um, where you want the books about, you know, various characters where children of color are the heroines, they're likely to be found in the school libraries and not in the classroom libraries. Um, media specialists also help kids 
um, figure out the difference between reading something on Facebook and reading something that's a research article. So they teach skills that are important in becoming literate that are beyond, and I'm not putting down classroom teachers. This, these are just in addition to um, what classroom teachers are doing that supplement and enrich instruction. And we particularly need those in areas of cities and, and rural areas where kids don't necessarily have access in their classrooms or their homes. I love that you brought up the bookmobile. I was like one of my favorite things growing up. <laughs> Not the bookmobile. And I think there's still time for you to for you to realize that dream, Kathy. I could see you <laughs> driving one of those. I'm not know. a good driver. Okay. So. Oh, well then maybe maybe you can figure some uh, something digital or, or like a or like a bike or something. But yeah. I, I definitely I definitely have that that you've gave me that vision. And now I don't think it's gonna I don't think it's gonna go away. But I digress. Um you, the 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 I I think it's 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 so crucially important. And I, I've talked to a lot of teachers, and I think that I've really kind of tried to elevate a lot of teachers in their work of creating these classroom libraries. But in talking with them, you realize how much work it is. Like it's it's such an incredibly um, time consuming part of their jobs. And it's not sustainable. It's just really not. Um and I think if we can recognize who those people are and, and the value that they bring, it's like that's a, perhaps another opportunity for educators, which, again, is another topic for another time, like giving giving educators different opportunities to do different work. But um, thanks for, for for addressing that. I just think that's such a such a key issue. And it's not one that we've talked about very frequently. And it's um, so important for so many uh, different reasons. So um, it, thinking about, you know, the particular subgroups. Um, of English learners or multilingual learners, what are some of the, we've kind of gotten to this a little bit, but what are some of the like direct implications um, of, of the policies we're talking about on specifically, I want to like try to focus on long-term English learners who are again, particularly vulnerable. Yeah, that's, um, so it's a tricky question, right? In a lot of ways, because one of the things I think we need to recognize and state over and over and over is it takes a long time right? Like it takes a long time to become academically bilingual or to learn another language. And so we've put this label on long-term English learners um, without also saying that, this, you know, that, that, that maybe that's not a terrible thing because it's, it's a long-term process. Yeah. Right. It's a long-term process. And so, um, so we have to be careful, I think, with the use of the term. And I, and, and I think the other thing about that particular term is it comes out of California, right? Um, but 10, 12 years ago, around the time bilingual education was ending, right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so we've gone through this period where in California in particular, um, they, they voted out, right? Um, it's what Jim Crawford has called the tyranny of the democracy, right? It's like we let everyone vote on something they don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they get rid of it, right? Um, and then we come up with this new term to say, well, now our kids aren't doing well. So we, ha we have to be, I think, super careful. I want to go back to what I said, I think at the beginning, and that is like what we know from research is that bilingual education, that kids do as well or better when they're in bilingual settings. And so um, I think our policies need to follow that. And I think California in particular is getting there, right? They just did Prop 58. And so, so we're reintroducing bilingual education. But in the meantime, going back to a question you asked probably three questions ago, right? Like, how did we prepare teachers? to be ready to take on, now we have new policies and we don't mm -hmm. have the teachers that are prepared for them. Yeah. So just all these pieces that are tricky. Um, 
And we have to recognize that kids in that get put into English language development programs for super long periods of time are missing out on other opportunities, right? And that 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 is the reality. So how do you balance their language needs with the fact that um, they need to be in math classes and they need to be in AP classes and they need to, right? The, the, the need is, it's a both and, right? Mm -hmm. How do we make sure that they get the language needs, but also the content um, as they go through the school system? I don't know, yeah. Kathy, anything to add to that? Yeah, one, one quick sentence, and that is, here's what we know. We know that there is a value to including children's native languages and cultures in the classroom, no matter what those native languages are. And so we hear people say, well, we can't do a full-blown bilingual program, so let's just do English. And in that case, Chinese might be confusing, so let's just leave it out. And we know that that's not true. We know a lot better how to do Spanish-English bilingual education than we do any other language, because that's where 85% of the kids are Spanish speakers. Mm -hmm. But we can use that knowledge and that research to figure out how to include productively other languages and cultures. We know that it helps with student engagement. We know it helps with identity. And you know, an engaged student is more likely to be a reader and a writer and someone who attends school regularly. I mean, we know a lot that I don't think that policy um, has been sensitive to, and we have dichotomized um, bilingual and English only. And in fact, we need to talk about it all as we're all teaching kids who are um, second language or additional English is an additional language. And how do we productively include their languages and cultures into our classrooms? I think that's a really good point, Kathy, because I mean, we know as much as we want to advocate for bilingual education and we think the research is there, most of the children are not in bilingual settings. Right. So how do we do it better in the English yeah. only yeah. schools? Yeah. Taking everything into consideration, we kind of go back to the beginning, too, when we were talking about how, you know, the policy isn't uh, caught up with the science or it's not in line with it right. um, as well. And so that. That and we, and I think we've done a good job of kind of exposing what this problem is, and we've kind of outlined some of the consequences. Looked at it from I think a, a macro point of view, and what is clear um, is that the research is on our side here. Um, so, so I mean, you know, the question is, what do we need to do? And I know that's a really hard question. And so I want to yeah. focus on the person who's listening to this podcast today and is thinking, you know, maybe I'm kind of falling into the trap of doing some of these things as, as we all do, like as a teacher myself, you know, you kind of figure out that, okay, what I'm doing right now is not really working. Maybe it's too much decoding, too much conjugating verbs in my case, less conversation. How do I, how do I make that change? So if I want to make a change as an educator, the classroom level, um, what's the first step you think that I should take? The first step, um, well, I, I, I always like to think of change in terms of small steps and not, you know, complete overhauls and throwing things out. So which, if, by the way, is the kind of way that it works in education, which is the, difficult I, I mean, to do. We do too much flavor of the week or flavor yeah. of the year. Yeah. Oh, we're not doing that anymore. Instead of realizing what was maybe OK about that. And so, you know, if I were a teacher in this particular period, um, you know, and I, I had a mandate to do the foundational skills, I would sneak in time. Well, I would do two things. I would advocate outside of my classroom, but in my classroom, I would sneak in time 
for, for conversation, for meta language and for um, comprehension. I would sneak in time for that because I know how important it is. I wouldn't not do what somebody told me I had to do because that's going to get you fired. Um, but I would make sure that I had a little, and those are baby steps, but then I would darn sure become an advocate outside of school mm-hmm. for what I thought was better for kids. Yeah. And you know, the wonderful thing that people will say about being a teacher is those moments when you can sneak things in that, you know, work. And we go back to that kind of anecdotal or observational yeah. evidence. This is very clear right now that what yeah. I'm doing is working, you know, and, and when okay. we have the research behind it too, it makes it easier. Anything to add? So I think that's good advice. So it's advocacy outside of school and kind of, as you said, sneaking some uh, some things in uh, while yeah. also still kind of staying in the lines. I think I think one thing we need to remember is that in general, like all students need a more diverse curriculum, right? This isn't, we're not just talking about bilingual learners needing yes. this, it's all students. So how do we, as teachers, maybe tap into those media specialists, right? That we were just talking about. You Maybe you don't have time to go find the books, but someone does. And um and, and not narrowing the curriculum. I fear that what we're hearing now is a really strong uh, push for narrowing the curriculum or hiding pieces of our curriculum, right? This anti-CRT uh, movement right now yeah. is a little scary yeah. that, yeah. Um, that we wanna ban books in schools is terrifying. And so if I'm a teacher, I wanna look at how do I broaden the curriculum, not narrow it. Right. How do I make sure that everyone is seen in the curriculum, but that they also see others in the curriculum? I know we talk about that as mirrors and windows, but um, what I worry about sometimes is we talk about diversifying the curriculum for diverse students, right? As opposed to white students need this too, right? They need to not see themselves as the center of the universe. And so if I'm a teacher, I'm trying to think about pushing back on the system, not just with the small reading group I have in front of me, but in my larger curriculum, in my classroom writ large, how am I meeting the needs of all the students in the classroom? And I know it's a, I know it's a big task, I do. Um, encouraging parents to talk to their students in whatever languages they speak best, right? It's a tiny step, but it's so important. So there's, there, like, I think Kathy's right, like you start with small steps and you can't not do what you're required to do, right? We need good teachers and you need to stay yeah. in the profession. So how do you within the system um, work in those other little pieces? Yeah, what I think is great is that you're both kind of talking about all students here and how all students can benefit. And I think that one of the things we say pretty frequently is, is you know, good instruction for multilingual learners is good instruction for all students. And sometimes that can be like an echo chamber statement where okay. there's not really, we don't really understand how. Um, but I, I was just, if I, if I was looking the other way, it's because I, I just looked up, there was an article in Ed Week titled Teachers of Color are Linked to Social, Emotional, Academic Gains for All Students. And there was just some research done about this. Um, looks like Annenberg, uh, Brown University did a, did a study. So I, I haven't read it, you know, the whole thing, but um, but that kind of points exactly to what it is that you're, that you're talking about. And this is something that we know, right? It's not... Um, Again, we know that anecdotally, right? But to see that research again, it just kind of goes to show that the research is behind everything that we're saying here. And that's more about the the pipeline for teachers, right? Yep. Yeah. We need to be recruiting in and how do we keep them and then tapping into the knowledge base that has been lacking. Exactly. Well, I, I mean, we've 
covered, I think, a lot of ground here, but there's so much more to talk about. You both are doing a lot of great work around this topic. So um, I have two more questions for you. And the second to last one is I'd love if you could just let us know um, how people can learn more about the work that you're both doing. Sure. Um, it's always tricky to answer this question, right? Because it feels like a shameless plug. No, but it's we, not. Just do it. Let's hear it. We do. We do a lot of um, work in bilingual settings. And so for people who are in bilingual education settings, particularly working with Spanish, English, bilingual children, we have a book. Um, the book is called By Literacy from the Start, Literacy Squared in Action. And so it walks um, teachers and educators, administrators through what are the foundational principles that should guide our biliteracy time and then digs into each of those components um, pretty specifically. So how, what, when earlier Kathy was saying, if I were a teacher, I'd sneak in oracy. There's a whole chapter on oracy, right? There's a chapter on meta language. And so that's one place to get more information about even just the nuts and bolts of what it looks like in the classroom. Uh, we're currently writing a new book uh, that's going to focus solely on writing. So that's not out, but it's coming. May as well put that out into the universe. Um, we, I, I, Kathy, I don't know if you would agree, but I strongly recommend the Sobrato YouTube video channel. They have uh, an incredible collection of um, classroom-based videos on each of the components of what good literacy or biliteracy programs look like. And so if I'm a teacher and I'm looking for, a, I've got 10 minutes and I want to go look at what does doing a dictado look like? What does what does making cross-language connections look like? I would go there. I send teachers there all the time. Um, we have a website, literacysquared.org. That's what I got. <laughs> I like what she's got. I, 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 I totally agree with that. So I, I will put in, uh, I think that practical, um, how-to guides for teachers we don't have enough of. We That's spend true. too much time sort of talking in generalities about you ought to do this, you mm -hmm. ought to include the child's first language, and we don't give people enough direction about how to do that and things that they might try. So I completely you know, agree and endorse uh, what Sue has just said. And then I think we need to work on policy too. And I'm very worried about policy directives, and that's how we're getting the national, the science for reading that of reading, um, and science in air quotes. Uh, but I, I believe there there are emerging groups like the National um, Center for Effective Literacy um, that are beginning to bubble up, um, that are saying we know more than you're giving us credit for. Um, we know how to teach multilingual learners, and we don't see. Um, that this that what you're proposing has had the desired effect on populations that we're advocating for. Mm -hmm. So we need the combination of the two things. We need our teachers to be uh, have absolute good information about practice, and we need a policy that supports them. Great. Well, I will link to all of the resources that you all just mentioned um, in the show notes, as well as the accompanying blog posts for this episode, so folks can find it. And you can go to elevationeducation.com slash el community to find all of that information and the last question is always the hardest one so this is the fun part um but sometimes people struggle with it but i've prepared you so hopefully you're ready um love to know if there's a book or a film or any other resource that's had kind of a big impact on you it could be personal it could be professional it's a question i ask everybody who comes on and um kathy i'll start with you oh gee so um i'm a septuagenarian 
So there's a, a, a book that I particularly um, have started reading and I like, and it's called Poetry for People Over 50. And so I would recommend that. I don't generally read um, poetry books, uh, but I also, you know, in my field, so you said one and I'm sorry, I violated the rules, but- Everybody violates hard. the rules, it's, okay. It, it's hard to pick just one. Um, in my field, um, I, you know, I, I think a foundational book is a book like Tongue Tied that says, you know, what we need to, to do to advocate for multilingual learners. Why are we in the United States so hopelessly monolingual? Um, when the rest of the world is uh, acquiring more than one language and, and somewhat successfully. So Tongue Tide is a, a very good book. I Am Joaquin is a book that I read as a young teacher um, that absolutely helped me clarify what it's like to grow up with two languages in a country that doesn't appreciate one of your languages and one of your cultures. And so I recommend all of those. And then for nighttime reading, I love Isabel Allende. So I've read yeah. all of her books. I love the historical fiction. Inez of My Soul is one of my favorite ones. But I mean, I everything Isabel Allende writes, I love. Well, that's like two or three months of reading for anybody listening. So, so thanks, Kathy. <laughs> So I'll, I'll go to you. Yeah, so I can I can attest that that of Kathy's love of Isabella Allende because she's constantly sending me books by her. Um, <laughs> so it's funny because the the book when you ask this question, the book that jumped to mind, Kathy's already mentioned. Like I constantly go back to Tongue Tied. Right, it is about what happens to ch when children's voices are silenced in our public education um, field. Right, it's a lot of testimonials. It's a, it's poetry, but it's also stories. What did it mean when I had to broker language for my mother at the doctor and I didn't know the word? And mm -hmm. is she going to die because I don't know the words, right? And so I go back and read and reread and, and use in my class still, the book's 15 years old, right? But I use materials from that because it personalizes it. Yeah, yeah. The way to go back and just... Um, to take something that sometimes we talk about even today, right? Even, even here on this podcast, we talk about it in this decontextualized way, but there are real human beings who are affected um, in profound ways. And so that's, that's when I go back to um, the, another one that does something, it, it's newer, but also sort of gets at that is the Rethinking Bilingual Education, which has a lot of short chapters. It's a really nice one for teachers who don't have a lot of time to go in and just pick up small pieces. Um, so those are the two I really wanted to talk about. Right now I'm reading a book, I should spend more time with it called Wintering, that is about trying to find quiet in your life. And I'm not very good at that, right? Like I'm always busy. And so it's about slowing down a little bit and that, you know, our need for that. But from a professional professional perspective, I tongue-tied is, is my go-to. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, you've given us given us a lot to think about, and I do think that that last book, as much as they're all, <coughs> excuse me, very powerful, I will check out Wintering because uh, that's something that I also struggle with. Um, <laughs> and with that, Kathy uh, Scabia and Sue Hopewell, it has been a pleasure chatting with you both. Thank you so much for taking the time and talking with us about such an important issue. I just really, really appreciate um, your abilities to not only talk about the research, but really contextualize it, talk about that anecdotal um, evidence and the observational evidence that that many many teachers really appreciate um people like you talking about so thanks for everything appreciate it thank you thanks for listening to highest aspirations if you liked our show please be sure to join the ell community at elevationeducation.com slash ell community 
where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.